Hi, everybody. Welcome to Unrestricted, the podcast that interviews noted public figures that have now returned to a more private life. My name is Steve Savitsky, president of B'nai Tzion Foundation, former president and chairman of many Jewish organizations. The people you're about to meet have great wisdom and experience. They were all leaders in the Jewish world and have much to share, unrestricted, with our listening audience. Hi, everybody. This is Steve Savitsky. Welcome back. I'm so excited this morning to have on Unrestricted Michael Oren, the famous Michael Oren, the former Israeli ambassador to the United States from 2009 to 2013, and also, of course, the prolific author, writer, speaker. Thank you for coming on the program. I'm so, I'm so excited that, you've, that you, you're honoring us by doing that. Thank you. My honor. Of course, you know, the question, one of the questions I have initially is, you were the Israeli ambassador to the United States at a very critical time. How was it when you left that job? I mean, I know you're so busy doing things, but did you miss it? Parts of it, yes. Parts of it, I was glad to survive. Um, I remember the day that I finished, I went for a walk in in Rock Creek Park, in in washington and uh i took off my shoes just walked barefoot and i didn't have security for the first time in almost five years i didn't have the weight uh of two countries and the peace of the middle east on my shoulders uh and the feeling was one of utter exhilaration um i hadn't had freedom like that you can't imagine this is a, a job in which there was no night no day no weekends no no vacations as you said, it was a critical period in Israel, U.S.-Israel relations. It was, um, I can tell you as an historian, it was the most complex and difficult and challenging period uh, in U.S.-Israel relations. And so to having that weight lifted off me was, as I said, exhilarating. On the other hand, uh, there were elements that I missed. I missed uh, being in Congress. I missed being in the White House. I missed interacting with different uh, ethnic groups and religious groups in the United States. Uh, but most of all, I miss serving. I miss the whole idea of shlichut, of having a, a mission. And it's not accidentally that, you know, just a year later, I went into Knesset. Right. So if, if you were offered the job again, would you take it? Probably not. I mean, I, it, there's, there's never a time when the state of Israel is going to call me and, you know, to the flag and I'm not going to come. But it's not a job that I would seek right now for many reasons, and not the least of which is that Washington has changed. And I think that my uh, service coincided with the last gasp of bipartisanship where you could still have a conversation with both Democrats and Republicans. And uh, American politics have become so polarized that it's very difficult to do that now. And so back then, I used to liken myself to uh, a gladiator who was lashed to two chariots going in the opposite directions. Now, I don't think you'd even have the option of being lashed to two chariots. You'd have to be lashed to one chariot. And I think uh, I still believe I'm of that minority school that still believes that bipartisanship is an Israeli strategic interest. And it would be very difficult to achieve that strategic interest today, not because of Israel, but because of of polarization of American politics. Uh, Because when you go to Israel, you know everyone talks about bipartisan relationships, and I think Israel's working really hard, but you're saying the issue really is America more than Israel. Much more so. Uh, You know, we we often don't help ourselves. I used to say to the prime minister that the the president has a knife to our, our hearts. We don't have to help him plunge it in. (laughs) <laughs> Occasionally, we help. We help. We help. We help some of our 
those people who challenge us plunge a knife into our hearts. But um, yes, it's mostly because of America. And Israel's become a football or a ping pong ball, whatever metaphor you want to use, uh, in that great struggle between the right and the left, Democrats and Republicans in the United States. And it also has nothing to do with realities in this area. Nothing at all. For example, give you a small example, Steve. You know, American campuses are are grappling with the uh, the multiple phenomena of, of wokeism and uh, and intersectionality and microaggressions and political correctness. You know, Israel is is not has no ability to impact this, and Israel has is not really involved in the debate, and yet we are on the receiving end. Um, and you know, why is it that uh, that people promoting, say, LGBT rights on campus with a common cause with Hezbollah and Hamas it makes absolutely no sense to us. And yes, that's the reality. And our ability to impact that debate is close to negligible. And so that's, that would be a source of great frustration for me. You want, as an ambassador, you want to make a difference. And your ability to make a difference has been so radically reduced, it's, it'd be less than worth your time. I think it would be very frustrating for me to, uh, to return, especially... As again, I enjoyed that last gasp of bipartisanship, and I had excellent relationships with both members of Congress, both parties. So do you think that that famous speech of Bibi Netanyahu in Congress, was that a turning point in the relationship, polarization? Or looking back at it as a historian, was it a, a good thing or, or not? Well, it accelerated a process that was occurring anyway. And um, you know, I had a, a controversial position, and I was no longer ambassador. I was going into government tonight profoundly agreed with the substance of the talk, but I disagreed with the, the placement of the talk in, in Congress because I knew it would, would accelerate the process of polarization and, and lead to the, the alienation of large parts of the Democratic Party and uh, particularly the Black Caucus. And I had worked particularly hard with the Black Caucus. My, my father had dedicated much of his life to building bridges between the American Jewish and African-American communities. And I was very close to this and I'd grown up among it. And so and I was able to use my father's bridges. I'd crossed them. Uh, during very difficult times. Uh, so I, I was disconcerted about it, to say the least. And there was a disagreement which the prime minister had with me, and I don't know if he's ever forgiven me for it. But in retrospect, I can see where that speech had a very profound impact on the debate around the, the Iran nuclear deal in the United States. I think ultimately, I think it cost us votes uh, against the deal. I don't know if the, 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 the discussion would have come out any differently, but it certainly cost us some votes. Now, so you were ambassador during the Obama years, right? Mm -hmm. Exclusively, right? Correct? Exclusively, yes. Right. And so, uh, obviously, you, you got to know him quite well. What did you think of him? Do you think he was a friend of Israel? People, was he anti-Semitic? Uh, what, what, what did you think? No, he was definitely not anti-Semitic. Not anti very intelligent person, or, um, very driven person, immensely charismatic, articulate a very interesting figure because I could take a step back and not be a Jew and not be an Israeli, just be an historian and say, okay, here's a transformative figure. On the other hand, while he was not uh, anti-Semitic in any way, he had a lot of Jews surrounding him. He, um, he didn't have Israel in his heart, as we like to say, uh, the way say Joe Biden does, the way even Bill Clinton did, the way George Bush did. He is, was of a generation that didn't remember the six day war, um, the way we remember it, uh, certainly not the Holocaust, the way we remember it. And he was uh, his his outlook on the world was very academic. Uh, I knew it. I knew it from having spent a lot of time in American campuses. There was nothing. Uh, there was nothing original or or uh, or alien about it. Um, and I think, and I'm not assigning uh, myself any prophetic abilities, but I was able to predict the positions he would take 
with close to 95% accuracy, only because I spent a lot of time on campuses. And um, he surprised me only one time. That was by uh, refusing to act on his red line in Syria when uh, the Assad regime used chemical weapons. He surprised me on that. I, I got, I'll admit on that one. But uh, and anyway, that's also a campus position. So uh, it wasn't particularly, it wasn't particularly original thought, but certainly intelligent and uh, in our world, there's a person who uh, had tremendous reservations about the use of military power under almost any circumstance, which is not the Israeli way. A person who had a high regard for international institutions, such as the United Nations, which we did not share that regard. Right? A person who felt a strong connection to the Muslim world, to the Palestinian cause. And people forget the, the Palestinians would not come to the negotiating table during eight years of the most pro-Palestinian presidency in American history. People forget that. Uh, we were at the negotiating table. They wouldn't come. They ran away. So, you know, it's it's uh, just on that alone, uh, there were problematics enough. Uh, there was a great desire on the part of the administration, certainly in its first term, to distance itself from the, the previous administration, uh, ABB, anything but Bush, uh, which during Trump years became ABO, everything but Obama. That's the nature of American politics. And since George Bush had had a very close relationship with us, um, Obama set out to distance himself. Very quickly, very quickly on the first day, almost, and uh, and then there was the personal chemistry or lack of it between the president of the United States and the and the Prime Minister of Israel, uh, two very different uh, individuals on one level, but another level two very similar in, in individuals, and I think it was as much their uh, similarities as there was their differences that led to the friction between them. Uh, both men considered themselves the smartest people in the room, for example. Both are great orators. Both of them view themselves as leaders, not just uh, in history, but leaders of history who had a historical role. I use the word transformative uh, role. Both of them seem that way. Not every leader thinks of that way. Um, you know, I don't think Olmert or, for that matter, you know, George Bush, certainly not Biden, think of themselves as, as transformative in that way. And so that led to, there's not a lot of room for a person for two people like that in the same room. The, room, the room's not big enough. No, it's not a lot of oxygen. I got you. But now I just was curious about something else. In other words, Bibby's been around forever. Okay. It seems like, you know, this is <laughs> now we're getting to the 75th year of, uh, of the anniversary of the state of Israel. It seems like he's almost been prime minister for 75 years. It seems like he's been there. He's not only the longest serving, he's not only the longest serving uh, prime minister of Israel, Steve, he's the, he's the longest serving democratically elected leader in the world. Really amazing. Unbelievable. But you knew him back then. Is it is it a different Bibby today than than you knew back in uh, two thousand and uh, nine to two thousand thirteen? I've known uh, Benjamin Netanyahu for forty years. Okay, is he different today than he than he was? I then? think he's different in certain ways. Yes, yeah, sure. Yes, he was. Um, I see Netanyahu uh, that that's far more embattled. He's weaker. Uh, one of the reasons we have the current crisis is not because Bibi is too strong, it's because Bibi is weaker. Uh, he has a coalition. Uh, in which he is the the leftmost person, and he he hates to be that. He likes to always be in the middle of his coalition, parties to the right and left, and he doesn't have that. Um, it's a, a Netanyahu who has been just you know, knocked down by these court cases and surrounded by an ever shrinking cadre of advisors. Now, um, this is this, by the way, is a, is a phenomenon that occurs to all leaders who are in government for a long time. It happened with Obama. Obama began his first term with a great set of advisors. Uh, we counted four different concentric rings of advisors. Okay, for example, someone like Dennis Ross would be in the fourth ring. 
not even the third ring. We regard him as the first ring leader. And uh, by the end of his second term, he had one ring. It was very small. And the same thing has happened with Netanyahu. When I served with, uh, as ambassador, we had an extraordinary uh, extraordinary team of advisors. Uh, to this day, I can um, I greatly respect and didn't agree with all, but there were people of great knowledge, of uh, intellect, uh, vision. And, uh, you know, most of them had, you know, falling outs of one degree or another uh, with Netanyahu. Could you name some of those people? Because I don't remember them exactly. Um, uh, Yochanan Lokir, the uh, pilot who was the military secretary. Uh, Jonathan Schachter, who was the deputy, uh, he was the strategic affairs advisor, really the, the, the dip diplomatic affairs advisor, extraordinary person. Uh, Sarah Greenberg, uh, my former student uh, from Yale, who was the assistant to, to, uh, to Jonathan Schachter. And Ellie Gruner, who later became the, the bureau chief. They were just it, to sit in a, in a room with these people was uh, was always an experience, always a experience. I mean, the national security advisor, the first one was uh, was Uzi, and uh, that was not particularly well. But the second one was uh, Yaki Yakov Amidou. Uh, again, not a person I necessarily agree with about everything, but a person of great intellect and integrity. So after a while, you just kind of rely on less people, and you think this is what happened to Obama, it happened to Bibi. And uh, so, you know, we're, we're definitely seeing, it looked to me as an outsider that we're definitely seeing a different Bibi. But it's interesting how you say that he's weaker now than he was then. Uh, somehow you would imagine someone who's been around for so long gets stronger, but not necessarily the case. Especially not in our political system. You know, I saw my, my role as ambassador would be the role, what they call in the Talmud, what they call in the Talmud, Yifcham Istanbul. Yep. Uh, it's difficult to translate into issue into English, but um, the American Army has a as uh, a as a, a similar role. It, it, they have a what's called the Red Team. So if the Army develops a, a consensus, a uh, uh, opinion about anything, a doctrine, the Red Team comes along and explains why that doctrine is not good, and uh, gives you pushback. Now, this was not institutionalized in our decision making process, but I saw that as my role. The Ifchami Stamper, I would come from Washington and. and yeah, sometimes I had to take on the entire staff <laughs> and everyone's yelling at me and making fun of me, but that was my role. It wasn't personal. And, and so, for example, I would come and say to the prime minister, um, and by the way, I only called him Mr. Prime Minister. I never called him Bibi, ever. ever. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Out of respect to the rank. You know, my father was a, uh, a career officer in the U.S. military. You salute the rank, not the person. And I was called him Adoni Rosh Menchula. Adoni Rosh Menchula, Anicholik. I disagree. And I would explain. Um, and so, so, for example, I'd say, listen, um, you know, uh, we have two major outstanding issues with the Obama administration. One is the peace process with the Palestinians, and the other is the Iranian issue. The peace process with the Palestinians is symbolic. Palestinians are never going to come to the table. They don't have people, they don't have leaders. They don't have leaders who are either willing and or capable of negotiating with us. So let's give Obama everything he, we possibly can on the peace process. But when it comes to Iran, our margin for error is exactly zero. Let's dig in our heels entirely. And it, that way, we'll gain leverage on the Iran deal. And it won't look like we're saying no to everything. And um, that was partially accepted. Remember the Bar Ilan speech, June 2009, um, the 10-month the freeze on settlement building in Judea and Samaria. These were very difficult decisions for the prime minister to make, but he made it as gestures to Obama. It was the unique... Uh, nature of Obama, that even after Netanyahu delayed possible military action, 
against Iran. Um, and that was 2012, if you remember the, the sizzling bomb he drew from right, the General Assembly. Right, of course. That, that basically bomb signifies that we weren't going to attack Iran. We're going to see if Iran crossed a red line. That none of these gestures were appreciated by Obama. Uh, and in fact, all those gestures uh, brought the prime minister nothing but contempt. I hear you. Now, so the job of the ambassador really is to represent the prime minister. So after you, Ron Dermer, came along, did, did he have your style? I mean, what what's the difference between, let's say, you and Ron Dermer, how they represented Israel and the prime minister? It's an excellent question. Every ambassador has a different style. Every ambassador frames his or her uh, term in office differently. Um, I saw myself as the representative of the people of Israel, the people in the state of Israel to the people of the United States of America, not the representatives of the prime minister, necessarily even of his entire government, but the people of Israel. And as such, every opportunity I had to get out of Washington, I got out of Washington. And I went to places you've never heard of, Kansas and Oklahoma and Texas. Um, because of my connect, my family connection with the American military, I visited many military bases, all the academies, and went out, and as the Simon and Garfunkel old song goes, I went out and looked for America. Uh, Sundays would find me in churches, speaking to African-American churches, evangelical churches, Catholic churches. I saw my role as reaching out and building bridges. And if I couldn't bridge them outside of Washington, I would make them in, in Washington. And I, one of the uh, activities I was proudest of was a series of dinners that highlighted uh, Israel's multicultural heritage. We had a Greek-Israeli night. We had an Arab-Israeli night. We had an Iranian-Israeli night with Iranian-Americans, not say Jews. And uh, we brought in Rita to sing. Uh, we always brought in a, a band to sing. On Arab-Israeli night, we brought in an Arab uh, band from Israel. We sang Israeli-Arabic music. We had an Irish-American night, which is my favorite. Uh, we brought in a wonderful band uh, from the Galilee um, called Everglean. Evergreen. We invited all of Irish America to this dinner. We served, you know, kosher uh, corned beef and uh, and good whiskey and stout. And I, I actually, I'm I'm a musician. I I play uh, Irish music, so I played with the band, and it was oh, wonderful. Wow. And wow. so um, it was. I, I love it. And the most important thing I did was was the iftar. The iftar, for your listeners who don't know, is the breakfast for Ramadan. Um, the White House, the British Embassy, the French Embassy have had iftar iftars. Ceremonies, and I, I said to my staff, "Listen, we have a much higher percentage of our population is Muslim than these countries. Why isn't there an Israeli iftar?" And my security uh, people looked at me like I was nuts, saying, "Wait a minute, you want to bring in dozens of Muslim leaders into the em embassy?" I said, "Yeah, that's what I want to do." And somehow we got the approval for all this, and that was a big question about whether anybody would come <laughs> if we had this. And I had a wonderful partner in the form of the Imam of Duke, um, the Imam Abdullah and Tebli. First year we had sixty participants. Um, they came to the they came to the residence. They did their evening prayers. We dava mincha, uh, and then we had uh, joint divrei uh, Torah, and uh, it was wonderful evening. And the next year there was eighty people, and the year after that there was a waiting list to get in. So when Ron Dermer came to Washington, I said, "You don't have to do you don't have to continue any of my programs, just one, and that's the iftar." And to this day, the Israeli iftar has become a uh, a, a yearly event uh, at the Israeli embassy. And I'm very proud of it. Wow, that. that's great. Ron fashioned, I think, I think, I don't want to speak for him, but I think he fashioned his uh, his service a little differently. He was much more of Netanyahu's advisor. 
uh, and representative to the White House, to the president. He was fortunate to have a president who was not challenging in the way my president was. He came at the end of the tail end of the Bob administration. Not easy. Uh, his, he had a good line. I should quote him. He says, I, I've had enough of tough love. How about some sweet love? How about some easy love? <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, and did some very fine work there, certainly in terms of, um, you know, concluding the Abraham Accords. Uh, I worked extensively with the Gulf uh, Arab representatives as well, but I did not have that great schut, that great privilege of actually signing on the dotted line. Uh, Ron did, and uh, much to his credit. But every ambassador, a different ambassador, our current ambassador is Mike Herzog. He's the uh, the brother of our president, uh, Isaac Herzog. I've, I've worked with Mike over the years. He was a, a negotiator with the Palestinians. Uh, I know him. I know his family well. I've worked with all of the Herzogs. I worked with Chaim Herzog, and I worked with his uncle. I was the last advisor to Abi. So uh, I've known the Herzogs very well. They're the closest we have to Kennedys, the, the Kennedy family. Right. The, but um, The royal family. They're kind of a royal family. They are. They're Israeli royalty, and uh, I'm very fond of them. And But Mike is completely different. Uh, Mike is not a, not a very public ambassador. He doesn't get on CNN every day, and um, I used to sleep in my vehicle outside the studios in Washington because I'd be on all night long. And I don't see him doing this now. No, no, I'm saying it's very interesting because you, Ron Dermer, everyone knew you. I mean, you were on TV, you were on the news every day, and yet I don't see him a lot. You know, people don't even know that he's the ambassador. No, it's not, it's not his style. He, he, he's a diplomat. He comes from the world of military intelligence. He's the behind the guy. That, he's the behind, behind the the door ambassador, much like my predecessor, so I married her, was a oh, great so ambassador. I, of course, yes. This was a wonderful, wonderful ambassador, wonderful human being and statesman. And uh, he also had a very different style. And, um, you know, when I came to Washington, I heard the great um, respect which people had for Salai. Right. Knew him through the Jewish when I was involved in the Jewish Agency. I got to know him very well. A really, really fine, fine person. So I want to just kind of shift for for a moment to two areas. One, I want to go back to your stay. You're born in America, conservative Jew, and I want to talk about that for a second. And then you make Aliyah, a, you know, an incredible a move for somebody like you know, a family that picks up, you pick up move to Israel. So let's talk about first conservative Judaism. And you were a conservative, you are a conservative Jew. I don't know exactly what that means. I'm not actually, I'm not actually, I belong, I belong to an Orthodox children, but okay. 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 So <laughs> if you stayed, I was thinking about this. If you stayed in America, what would your religious life be like? Would you still be a conservative Jew or an Orthodox Jew? What would your kids be like? I, I mean, I think about this a lot. I'll tell you why, because look, we're, this is a program unrestricted. You and I love Israel. We love Jews. We love we love freedom. I, I'm very disturbed about where we are in America as far as the Jewish people. We're we're stagnating. We're not growing. Uh, I, you know, and I'm I'm just really I'm really upset about it because I think that we had a golden opportunity. We should have been 15 or 16 or 17 million people today, and we're the same six we were in 1948. So, you know, I don't know. Maybe you can help me. <laughs> Okay, it's a long discussion. Um, first of all, I, I grew up in a, in a very unique moment in, in Jewish history, certainly in American Jewish history. I grew up in, in a society that really, from a, from a Jewish perspective, was the most secure, the most free, the most affluent in, in our history. The fact that some of my uh, co-religionists in my generation used that moment to tear down America 
<laughs> in the radical movements of the 60s and the 70s. It's amazing to me looking back on it, the, the, the gross ingratitude of it. But we were also the last generation which American Jews were a distinct ethnicity. See, we, you know, no one, ate, no one else ate bagels back then. We ate bagels. They were horrible. They were hard. <laughs> and we ate whitefish and we ate herring and we ate chopped liver. No one else did. Uh, Jewish humor was Jewish humor. This was, you know, before Seinfeld, before Jewish humor became American humor. And there were restricted neighborhoods. And I lived near one. There were restricted clubs. There were restricted, you know, many way hospitals didn't hire Jewish doctors. There was still the the remains of the uh, the quota system in, in Ivy League universities. Uh, the astronauts were all lost. You couldn't be astronaut and be Jewish, right? You could barely be a senator and be Jewish. Jacob Javits was a big thing. Right, Jacob right? Javits. Right? Big thing, right? Jewish senator. Imagine that. Imagine that. So all these things were unthinkable for American Jew. We were very much a distinct ethnicity. I did not grow up thinking I was white either. I mean, someone asked me what, what race I was. I was the Jewish. <laughs> and uh, today, you know, Israel, Jews are not a distinct ethnicity for the most part in the United States. And uh, we, you know, we thought of not just being white, but many sort of cases white ex extraordinaire because we are uh, successful and affluent for many in the most part. I mean, our great writers, Philip Roth, Saul Bellow, Bernard Malamud, all asked basically the same question. How can I be Jewish and American at the same time? Young American Jews, even, you know, from American Jews today, not only do they not ask that question, they don't even understand that question, Steve. <laughs> what? There's no contradiction here. I can be American, American Jewish. So it's it, American Jewish Jewry. On one hand, is an immense success story, one of the great success stories of our history. It depends what your barometer is, what your metric is for success. On the other hand, I grew up in a largely spiritually vapid environment. I read my bar mitzvah in transliteration, in English English letters. I would not, if my said would have known what tefillin were. I would not have known what Talmud was. I scarcely knew what kashrut was. Scarcely. I knew a handful of Jewish holidays and didn't understand this. If you asked me what Simchat Torah was, I would, all I know is I got a jelly apple. Okay. I wouldn't have known actually what it meant. Okay. Then Purim was, there was a carnival. And, you know, I'm also, a, I'm a novelist. We haven't talked about that part of my life, but uh, not my, my last novel, my penultimate novel, it was a novel called To All Who Call in Truth, a very Jewish novel, and it's set in a Jewish community in 1972 in a suburban community. And, and one of the themes of it is spiritual vapidness, the search for some type of spiritual content. We had none. And so I was fortunate. I was fortunate that uh, at age 15, 16, I woke up one morning and uh, said, I'm Jewish. And that was very much linked to my Zionism. And I decided that I had to educate myself. And I went out and found a rabbi, a wonderful Chabad rabbi, who turned out to be a very famous Chabad rabbi. I didn't know Rabbi Shalom Gordon. And uh, he, yeah, show you. You can't see this, but he gave me the tefillin I still put on every day. Really? Wow. When I was 15, I didn't have a pair of tefillin. I didn't know what were. And, um, and began to teach me tomorrow. You know, I'm still grappling with my my religion to this day i love i love the kila i belong to uh which is interesting it's largely mizrahi and working class i just i just uh, love it um here in jaffa but um but it was very much attached to israel and uh what i did grow up what we did have was a strong sense of cultural jewish not to belabor the term ethnic identity my father 
had fought in World War II, landed on Normandy with his brother Joe. And uh, matter of fact, <laughs> just to show you again, the, the film case that I have says J JB on it, which is my uncle's film case. Uh, and my uncle who landed on Normandy with my father uh, was a colonel in the U.S. military. And uh, and they took they they liberated a concentration camp and they took pictures of what they saw there. I carry them in my cell phone to this day. Horrendous pictures. And we lived in a working class neighborhood, a Catholic neighborhood, and I used to get the crap beat out of me all the time for being Jewish. And I come home all bloody. My father would open the album with these pictures and say, "You see that, son? See that?" He says, "That's why we need a strong state of Israel." You hear that when you're nine years old, nine years old, and you got a bloody nose for being a Christ killer. That has a very profound impact. And so did the Six-Day War. I mean, we all remember the great victory of the Six-Day War, but what had the impact on me was not the victory, but the three weeks before when Israel was surrounded by Arab armies and they were going to throw Israel to the sea, into the sea. And, and we all thought we'd witness a second Holocaust in one generation. No one was going to do anything. So that had a huge impact. So the same year I found Rabbi Shalom Gordon was the year I went off and worked on a kibbutz alone. I was 15. And so that, that was transformative. And in my my memoir, the the book Ally, it starts off with my meeting Yitzhak Rabin and when I was 15 years old and shaking his hand as he was ambassador and to saying to say to myself then that's what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> wow, unbelievable! <laughs> but the but the conservative Judaism that you knew is not the conservative Judaism today. Actually, Judaism today is better is much better. I go to bar mitzvahs today and the conservative movement kids actually know Hebrew and they know Hebrew well. The problem is it's just it just hasn't succeeded. And now JTS is on the verge of closing. I understand a few rabbinical students there are not pro-Israel, to say the least. And, you know, it's going to sound controversial, but reforming conservative Judaism set out to preserve Jewish identity and spirituality in the age of modernity. And it's a big question whether they've succeeded. I've, I've met congregations that have succeeded. I, I recently visited a wonderful reform congregation outside of Philadelphia. Uh, Beth Orr, great rabbis, and uh, a growing Hebrew school of more than 400 kids. And the principal of the Hebrew school is a Chabad rabbi. Wow. You can't make this, you can't make this up. No, that's amazing. Wow. And the kids love him. The parents love him. He loves the show. And I asked him, I said, wait a minute. <laughs> How do you do this? And he said, uh, he says, you know, the, the Rebbe said that we have to bring Jews back to the Judaism they knew. And I think that's, I think that's, I wish this could happen in Israel. That's all. I wish this could happen in Israel. So what do you, how do you feel about the role of diaspora Jew? I mean, uh, it's, I think it's important. I think it's very important. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm just seeing a lot of tension between, I know that I just came back from the Conference of Presidents, which we had in Israel, our mission in Israel, you've spoken there before. And I saw the divisiveness that we're seeing now, you know, reform, conservative, and their alienation with a lot of things going on in Israel. It really, it, it hurts. It hurts a lot. Well, let's let's take that term diaspora Jewry and, and put a double qualifier on it. Okay. First okay. of all, diaspora Jewry, American Jewry is not necessarily diaspora Jewry. And American okay. Jewry also are insulted by the term diaspora Jewry because it assumes that we are in exile. We're not in exile in America. America is the other promised land. But, for example, my very significant other here, Tammy, is from a small island off the coast of Colombia, small Jewish community. They don't have Reformed Jews in Colombia. They don't have conservative Jews in Colombia. It's just Jews. <laughs> and they're overwhelmingly pro-Israel, very Zionist. And that's very typical of diaspora communities. You even go into Canada, and Canadian Jewry is very different than United States Jewry. 
It's more similar to South African and Australian jewelry. And so you can't generalize about diaspora jewelry. Uh, certainly, if you include American jewelry, and then you can't, then the, the second qualifier, you can't talk about the American Jewish community because there isn't an American Jewish community, there are American Jewish communities. And they can be very different. Um, you have modern orthodoxy, you have, you know, reform and all of its various shades. And by the way, that 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 uh, synagogue I went to outside of Philadelphia, Beth Or flies the Israeli flag, is, is, is unequivocally pro-Israel. Okay. And so is the reform, the conservative synagogue I grew up in New Jersey. <laughs> They're very pro-Israel. But, you know, that's not true of the entire community. And um, especially among young American liberal Jews, uh, tremendous and growing disaffection uh, with Israel. And yet every poll still shows that connection with Israel remains a very important part uh, of American Jewish identity. I am one of those weird people who are optimistic about uh, the future of American Jewry. And because of dem also because of demographics. It's true that um, we have a very, very high level of uh, assimilation, of intermarriage. Um, I think the bigger problem in intermarriage today is, is non-marriage. It's actually higher. Uh, very small families among liberal American Jews don't, don't don't replicate themselves, don't meet the you know, re re replacement rate of, of fertility. Yet among Orthodox Jews, almost zero intermarriage in very large families. So you have a, a community like New York. The New York Jewish community has, the last seven years has grown. Of not course, Trump. right. A lot of it's Haredi. So if you look, look 34 years from now, the American Jewish community might be smaller, I don't know, but it's certainly going to be more Jewish. <laughs> and it'll be probably in one way or another more attached to Israel. And, uh, in one way or another. Right. I hope so. No, I certainly hope so. But I said, I'm just looking at kind of from a macro point of view, looking at, you know, I think of the 75th year now, and I look at American population back in 1948 was about 135 million, 140 million people. We were five and a half million people, whatever, six million almost. Now there are 350 million Americans, and we're still, you know, when, when, you, when your numbers don't change, it's very hard to have influence in your country when you're really when you're really a minority, very small minority, and that's what scares me, honestly. And yet, you're not even thought of a minority. You're not thought of a minority, and and anti-Semitism has been de downgraded as a form of racism. Because racism is about power and color. It's not a you can't if you're white and affluent. You can't hatred against you is not on the same level as other racism. Um, I mean, there are challenges facing American Jewry, which are uh, not fully appreciated here, even partially appreciated. One is the gradual uh, whittling away of the meritocracy, the American meritocracy, of which uh, American Jews were in many ways the if were were a major, if not principal, beneficiaries. And it's my own my only family story. My grandfathers on both sides of my family were, were working people, mechanics and carpenters. The next generation were lawyers and doctors. Um, and uh, because of, even in the face of anti-Semitism, uh, Americans, Jews advanced because of their talents, because of their commitment, because of the, the sweat of their brow. And today there may be different criteria for getting ahead in America. And there was a recent article published in Tablet Magazine that actually adduced statistics showing that the, the very sharp reduction percentage-wise of Jews at Ivy League universities, uh, in corporations, even in Hollywood, uh, are dropping off because there are different criteria for getting ahead. And um, and that's going to be a huge challenge for American Jewry if this trend continues in the United States. 
Right. Well, look, uh, you know, obviously we could continue this forever because you're such a fascinating person and you have so much to say. I really want to end it with uh, a little thing I do, which is kind of I call it a little bit of a lightning round, which is just some questions. Kind of give me the first thought that, that you think. OK, so let's talk about who who's the greatest person you actually ever met in your lifetime? Oh, beside Rabbi Gordon. Okay, good. That's great. Okay. Robert was maybe the greatest single person I've ever met. I had a very close relationship with Elie Wiesel. Not okay. that I agreed with everything he said and did, but a very close relationship with Elie Wiesel. He was a, a truly great physician. And um, if it comes immediately to mind, I'd have to say a woman named Paula Miller, um, who was a screenwriter, and producer in Hollywood in the 1970s and 80s. And she took me under her wing when I was a young writer and taught me about writing, taught me how to write well. What about the smartest person you ever met? Uh, Henry Kissinger, with whom I was there, had the privilege of sitting long hours with. A professor in Washington named Michael Mandelbaum at Johns Hopkins, the greatest mind in Washington. Okay. And a gentleman named Benjamin Netanyahu, who uh, okay. just in terms of his sheer intellect, is smarter than anybody I met teaching at Harvard and Wow, amazing. What about the greatest leader you've ever met? Ronald Reagan. Really? Oh, very interesting. Yeah, well, I'll explain it. I, 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 I think that there's three criteria for being a great leader. You have to be a great orator, you have to be a great decision maker, and you have to be a great politician. And someone like Churchill was a great orator and a great decision maker, was a terrible politician. <laughs> and, uh, and you can count almost on one hand the politicians who, who fulfill that, those criteria. Someone like Lincoln, Roosevelt, Reagan, you're exhausting that list already. I hear you. What about um, if you could go back in history and you could meet any person at all, who would you want to meet? Akiva. Akiva, Rabbi Akiva, the great, the great Tana, the great Tana Rabbi Akiva. I have a couple of questions. <laughs> what about your, um, your favorite holiday, your favorite Chag? My favorite Chag is... Uh... I think it goes as it goes. It has to be Pesach. I love Pesach, yeah. I, so I many like people Pesach. say that it's interesting. Yeah. Now you've been all over. You've seen so many places. What's your favorite place that if you could, you'd like to go back to over and over and again? Um, the place to go back to over and over again. I've lived all over the state of Israel. Many years in Jerusalem. I'm living in Jaffa now, but I spent five years in the Negev. But my favorite place and place that I go back over and over again is the Golan Heights, and I was proud to establish the Golan Development Caucus in Knesset. Right. I'm fearful that if we do not develop the the, the Golan, uh, and that if we don't have a hundred thousand Jews moving to the Golan every decade, uh, that eventually we'll come under pressure to secede the, the Golan again, to give up the Golan to, to the Syrians. And Assad's coming back. You're going to start feeling that pressure soon. And we uh, haven't done it. We, we have neglected the Golan. And the Golan is part of Eretz Israel. Here's an interesting statistic that people don't know, Steve. We've discovered 90 plus ancient synagogues uh, in the land of Israel. Uh, 35 of them are on the Golan Heights. Really? Wow, unbelievable. Let me ask you one final question. If you favorite vacation spot, you've been all over, where is it? Nantucket. Nantucket, love it, very good. Listen, Michael. My last that... novel, my, my, my last novel, my penultimate novel is called Swan's War. And it's set on a in, a in an island that I made up <laughs> off Massachusetts called 
for it, but it's modeled on that. I hear you. Well, listen, thank you so much. I really appreciate it and appreciated you coming on Unrestricted. Uh, you've only you've always been unrestricted in a way because you've always <laughs> spoken up. But I guess when you're no longer, you know, the Israeli ambassador, it gives you more freedom to say some of the things you want. And I appreciate it. I'm sure the listening audience is going to appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for coming on the program. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Call to Thank you. Bye bye. Take care. Well, bye bye. Thanks for tuning in to Unrestricted, hosted by Steve Savisky. The show was produced and edited by Gilad Brownstein and is a production of B'nai Zion, 